Welcome to the Chicago Justice Project. My name is Tracy Siska. I am the host and executive director of the Chicago Justice Project. We have a great show for you today. We're going to bring you excerpts from our Facebook Live discussion with Joby Cates, founder and executive director of Reform Justice Illinois. Our discussion focuses on COVID-19 and the response from the Illinois Department of Corrections, or IDOC. But first, the Chicago Police Department has a new superintendent, former Dallas Police Chief David Brown. Obviously, the myriad of crime data manipulation allegations during his years as deputy chief and chief was not enough to stop Lightfoot administration from hiring him. Allegations published in the Dallas Morning News would have been more than enough to disqualify him from consideration in our judgment. How the Chicago Police Board put him on the shortlist deserves to be answered. My sources in Dallas say we should expect the same kind of crime data manipulation in Chicago. We will see if that occurs. Given that Lightfoot is supposed to be such an advocate for transparency and accountability, it makes no sense to us why he was her candidate. But now she owns him. Our transparency efforts are going to root out any killing of crime he tries in Chicago. Also, please remember, Brown's confirmation was rushed in an amateur political move to prevent the media and the public from learning about his history. One would have thought the candidate Lightfoot would have created an inclusive process for Chicagoans to learn about all three candidates, review the materials well before the city council would move to confirm him. But alas, that did not happen. Mayor Lightfoot made sure of it. Less than a year in, and certainly seems so far that the new boss is not all that much different from the old boss. One of Brown's first moves was to flood high-crime neighborhoods with officers from low-crime Northside neighborhoods in two-hour increments. This is not a crime-fighting strategy, but it certainly makes noise. One of So communities take notice of the CPD doing something, and it certainly gives the media something to talk about. Our sources told us he likes gimmicks like this one he just pulled off, and that is a history of them in Dallas and we should expect nothing different from his time in Chicago. Maybe this was done to reinforce the shelter-in-place order. It'd be nice to get a straight answer, but I'm not expecting Brown's administration to be any more forthcoming with the truth than the last 50 in Chicago. He has a long history of being hostile to the media, playing very loose with the truth, and not responding well to being questioned. It might just be a short and rocky tenure for David Brown. Also, just a quick note, that CJP is now delivering a variety of originally produced content to this podcast, our YouTube channel, and our Facebook page through Facebook Live interviews every Wednesday from 12 to 1 p.m. Central Time. If you want to access our entire conversation with Joby or any of the Facebook Live interviews, you can access them on our Facebook page. Let's turn to our conversation with Joby Cates, who is the founder and executive director of Reform Justice Illinois, an organization that started out solely focused on justice, policy reform for juvenile lifers, which is juveniles sentenced to life sentences for crimes committed prior to their 18th birthday. Based on U.S. Supreme Court decisions and the intractability of the Illinois General Assembly on these issues, the organization has expanded its focus to deal with a host of criminal justice system problems that intersect and thus have to be dealt with together. I'm going to apologize up front about some of the noise that makes it into this conversation as our attempts to limit extraneous noise lost battle to the pandemic living situation as my PhD health economist's wife worked across the dining room table from where I'm recording. Here is Joby talking about what the organization was working on just prior to COVID-19 hitting the national agenda. So what were you doing just prior to COVID-19 hitting the uh, country and all of our agendas? What were you working on before that happened? 
It feels like a million years ago. Um, so before COVID-19, uh, well, we were in the very earliest part of the legislative session in Illinois, and we had our, our largest legislative agenda ever. We were looking at um, reforming the felony murder rule in Illinois with Senator Robert Peters and uh, Representative Justin Slaughter. Uh, we were looking at um, a number of pieces of legislation that would um, help family members maintain um, connections with their loved ones. We have a number, we call the Visitor's Bill of Rights, a number of uh, bills that we've worked on over the years with legislators who wanna make sure that visitors are not treated poorly or overcharged yeah, 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 yeah. So or have, have to endure um, too much degradation to, um, when they've been present. And finally, we had a bill that was uh, designed to close the final loophole in our original mission, which was to end yeah. life for the for juveniles in Illinois. The sentence is still on the books uh, in Illinois, although it's very rare and, and, and um, narrow. Uh, we Hi, have been able to work with legislators to draft legislation to close the final loophole. So that's what we're working on coming into uh, COVID-19. So in January of this year, the virus starts making some headlines in the U.S. We asked Joby how that changed their work. Well, I, I think one of the things... Um, that's a little different about us. We're, we're a policy wonky organization. We um, research and develop policies and try to work with legislators to draft and, and, and advance legislation. So that's a big part of what we do. But because we were born out of this group of lawyers and moms and wives and children of long-term inmates, we're really connected to a lot of people in prison through visiting, through letters, through phone calls. And even more unique, I think, is that as some of the juvenile lifers, these guys who we were originally founded to help, um, started getting relief through a U.S. Supreme Court ruling in 2012, they came out and they started to work with us. So I actually have two people on my staff who served more than 25 years in the Illinois Department of Corrections, wow. and they know a lot of the men who are incarcerated now. Um, my outreach manager uh, son is currently incarcerated, and he is in the last several years of a 30-year sentence for a crime he committed at the age of 15. Um, so these individuals are a part of our daily life. Um, they are our life. They're the reason we do this work. And so we, um, we talk with dozens of inmates every day and we talk with their family members. We do, we've been for years doing training uh, for people who have loved ones in prison, who wanna learn how to advocate for their loved one more effectively, who wanna get involved in the legislative process and the policymaking process in Illinois. Um, and we've uh, really worked hard to have a credible high integrity network of people um, in our lives who spend time visiting prisons on the reg. Oh, I, um, yeah, yeah, I no, visit I prisons I regularly. I have four or five people who I visit. Oh, yes. um, my family, my children, my husband visit regularly. So what's a little different for us is the minute this virus hits, we're worried about our loved ones. I'm worried about people I know who are at Stateville or Menard Correctional Center in Southern Illinois, where there's a huge elderly population. People I've been corresponding with at Pontiac, which is a a very uh, poorly, uh, it's, it's just got a terrible uh, record with healthcare, um, as does Menard and as does Dayville, uh, with older, longer term inmates. So those are the three maximum security prisons in the state where many of our um, constituents, our loved ones are, are housed, um, so are incarcerated. So we, um, we were immediately worried and just trying to keep our eye on the news, but we were also in the middle of our legislative, you know, the, the General Assembly was still meeting and we were trying to pass our bills. Uh, so, so, 
really the, about the last few days of February and the first few days of March, um, we teamed up with a lawyer named Jennifer Sobel at the Illinois Prison Project, who's a um, really a tireless champion for older inmates who are um, seeking clemency and commutations. And she reached out to us and said, you know, let's do something. Um, let's do something realistic. Let's, let's try to pin our COVID-19 recommendations on something we think the governor might actually do and not just kind of wave our hands and, and say the sky is falling. We wrote an op-ed that we pitched to the local papers. Nobody bit. And I'd like to think, I'd like to think um, they didn't bite not because we didn't write a beautiful op-ed, uh, but I think they I think they didn't bite because it wasn't the most important aspect of the crisis yet to people. I don't think people were thinking about prisons or prisoners yet, um, but a group called Injustice Watch published it, and we started um, advocating directly with the governor and others to, to do early releases and to do systematic early releases, um, including uh, medical furlough, including reviewing anyone who was over the age of 55 or had an underlying medical condition. Um, what this exposed to us is how, um, uh, how and you, you'll really, this is your area, the data universe, is that the data, data from prisons and about prisons and prisoners in Illinois is horrifically thin. Um, the system has um, ancient and anachronistic, <laughs> anachronistic, but they have ancient systems that are poorly managed. Um, and they're, it's very, very difficult for the system to generate um, good data. So we have, um, you know, saying to the system, we want you to look at everyone over age 55 in every facility and review them meant they had to do a case review for an individual and go through a process that wasn't as simple as clicking a button just to review the person. Uh, because the systems aren't um, as, as clear and as concise as they need to be. Um, so it's turned out to be quite a journey since then to try to get the system to quickly move through these early releases. Um, and we think we've hit the end of the road um, in many ways with our original recommendations um, around early release. So Restored Justice Illinois is seeking to get people out of Illinois prisons. I asked Joby to describe who exactly are they targeting for release. You will hear Joby comment about her daughter who enters the room during the interview and is crawling on the floor trying to avoid being on our Facebook Live interview. She was not successful. Let's go back four steps. So when we first yes. started learning about the pandemic, we learned from our public health colleagues, who I love, by the way, public health people are the best. Go public health. Um, they really are the best. Um, started teaching us about this virus and teaching us what it meant that we were going to hit at some point and in certain communities a peak of medical resources and that we weren't going to be able in every community to support with ICU beds and with ventilators the number of people who may become sick on a given day and need that support. We started looking at all the counties in the state and counting ICU beds and we started counting um, regular beds and we started looking at communities like Chester, Illinois, where Menard is, where there are thousands. <laughs> Hi Stella. That was a nice try. But yeah. it was it was a good effort. <laughs> it was a valiant, credit. valiant. It effort. was okay. It's okay. <laughs> the situation we're all in now. It's wonderful. I love that kid. Um, that's my daughter. Mm -hmm. um, we are um, so we're counting beds and we're counting ICU beds, and we're saying in Chester, Illinois, there may be two or three ICU beds in nearby hospitals, and there are three or four thousand inmates between the maximum security, the medium security, and the other support units. And 
let's say at Menard in particular, uh, I don't have the numbers for Menard in particular, but that's where all the old people are. I mean, they're, they're at Menard and Pontiac and Stateville. That's where the senior citizens are. Um, we already have a situation where at Menard, they are asking inmates before COVID to care for elderly peers without pay because they don't have the resources to care for the elderly at Menard already or the sick. The infirmary is already maxed out. The system's already lost lawsuits saying they can't provide healthcare to these inmates. So the idea that from my point of view, anyone you release, any one human being you release, regardless of who they are, what they did or how old they are, whether they had comorbidity, is freeing up resources for other people in that facility. It's freeing up staff to be exposed to fewer bodies every day, right? It's making everybody safer. It's freeing up that hospital and that location, especially because most of those people are from Cook County, they're gonna go back to a city where there's resources um, and they won't be in the middle of a community where the resources are much, much more slim. Now that we've seen this playing out, uh, we saw it play out at Stateville early on where doctors were very upset in the Joliet area that they were caring for numbers of inmates that they had no idea how to handle. Um, dealing with inmates who were coming in and needing ICU care, while people in the community were getting scareder and scareder that if they needed care, they wouldn't be able to have a bed because of inmates from Stateville. So to answer your question, sorry, that was a long preamble, is to say, we said to the, the governor and to um, the Department of Corrections, anyone within 30 days of release, whatever they did, they're going home in 30 days anyway. Is there that big a difference? Regardless of crime, if you are scheduled to go home in 30 days, the system has deemed you safe to go home in 30 days on, say, a five-year sentence or a seven-year sentence or a 22-year sentence. Who cares? You are going to go home in 30 days anyway. Why not send them home now and protect everyone in that community, in that prison? Give one more um, you know, little chance that we won't peak in that prison or have an outbreak in that prison that will cause you know, huge mayhem in the whole community. So um, when we say over 55, when we say comorbidity, it's those are the people who are most vulnerable. Obviously, we care about their particular safety. But you know what the system did was, and I think rightly, is they looked at everyone. They've already, I think, reviewed everyone who's getting out within the next six months, thousands of people, and tried to release as many of them as they can. We wish they'd done more. We think they should have done more. Um, they were pretty conservative with it, but they at least reviewed cases of people, anybody who was getting out um, in six months and um, didn't have a violent incident in prison in the last year, et cetera. IDOC has a reputation for horrible data that is widely spread in the criminal justice community. The horrible data leads to this response from Joby to a simple question about how many people have been released so far. I'd love to do that. I can't do it accurately because they're not reporting that number um, in writing. So what I can tell you is the governor has said on multiple occasions at his daily press conference that the level of inmates in the system is about 1,300 less than it was on March 1st. Not all of those releases were related to COVID. Okay. So we don't know how many of those releases were COVID related, whether they were part of the special early release. We don't have the data. We don't, they're not releasing names of who they've released. Um, so we can't do an analysis and say these people were all released three months early, whatever. We, we just can't. Um, and we have no way of um, either thanking the administration or pushing them harder because we don't have solid data. Um, and it's troubling. The conversation then turns to healthcare inside the various IDOC facilities across Illinois and why there are stark differences in the level of healthcare across the different facilities. Well, I, I think 
couple of things about that. I mean, one is that we know, the only reason we know anything about healthcare in prisons is because of a lawsuit that was brought on behalf of clients, I think the named case is Lippitz. Um, and it, it was brought about 10 years ago and it was won. And part of the settlement in that case is the requirement of, I think it's biannual every other year, um, reports on whether or not IDOC has improved. And the most recent two reports are abysmal. Um, they note that two out of every three deaths in IDOC before COVID were preventable deaths. Just inhale, breathe in, exhale. You know, our healthcare system in prison is letting people die as it is. So this is a system that um, was also found recently in the most recent reward, I think it was in October, November of 2019, to not have been improving um, at a rate that they could, that they could say, um, anything good about in this, you know, independent research report ordered by the court. So what I, I don't know um, how variable things are from facility to facility, but because the report does do reviews at specific facilities, I can characterize some of the, um, and, and others could do it far better than I could, characterize some of the unique problems at different facilities. So for example, Menard, which has more elderly and more sick patients, is also in a community with fewer external hospital resources where you know, Stateville is pretty close to the, an urban area with more medical choices and resources. So part of the problem is that we contract out to a group called Wexford for our substandard healthcare in Illinois, and that group isn't providing good service across the system. But for those who, are, um, who can't get care in the facility and need to go to their local community hospital, then their healthcare varies based on which community they're in and which hospital they're going to be able to um, uh, seek care from. Does that help? It does. Disparities in inmate health care is something I have heard about since the very early days of my work in criminal justice issues in Chicago, dating back to the mid-1990s. Even then, we learned that it had been an issue that was as old as time. It seems like the legislature and IDOC are just refusing to deal with this reality. I asked Joby why she thinks the health care disparities have not been taken care of. That's an excellent question. I mean, I think... Recently, John Howard Association, ourselves, and a number of others worked with members of the General Assembly to pass legislation that would, at a minimum, stop forcing inmates to pay for their substandard health care. So we no longer have a copay, um, which, again, the legislature doing that was a step forward, and that took more than one session to pass. That was not an in and out bill. We're and there was opposition to that bill. Yeah, we wait, were wait, making wait, inmates wait, wait, pay for wait. their bad care. <laughs> we're, yeah. We were charging a copay to people. Mm -hmm that we're making sure can't work. Correct. And they, if they want to get health care in the prison, they have to pay a copay. That's right. I might Not be anymore, wrong. thanks to okay. uh, Representative yes. Amens and others. Thank you. Yeah. One of the things that bothers me about criminal justice policy and practices and legislation and advocacy and everything is that people don't think about the, my wife would call it like a, uh, externalities to any, my wife, the PhD health economist would say it's an externality. Mm -hmm. Isn't inmates not getting health care and being sick, isn't that a workplace issue for the guards and people working in those prisons? I believe it is. And I think you're absolutely right. But I don't think that they, I don't think that the, I mean, I don't know this, but it doesn't appear to me that AFSCME, which represents public workers in prisons, has, um, and, and each prison, by the way, has its own bargaining unit 
which is interesting. Um, I haven't seen any evidence that those bargaining units have made that an issue. They may. Following this, um, we, we heard the governor announce yesterday that um, he couldn't comment on a question about four uh, correctional officers at Illinois River who were um, transferred to Stateville to fill in for, you know, four of the 70 some odd correctional officers who are who are sick, sick. with COVID or quarantined. Um, and so they had um, been told that they were going to have paid quarantine time. There was some, something went wrong. And now it's a now it's a bargaining question. So I think this I think this type of health care our health care is linked to the health of the inmates will emerge from this crisis. I don't think it was on the table before, and it probably should have been, probably always should be. Um, but they're linked. They live in the same ecosystem, whether they like it or not. Joby comments on why our thinking about inmates, the conditions they are held in, and how people can expect them to turn themselves around while incarcerated. I want to get your opinion on a debate we always had in grad school, and I've, I've, I've had to deal with it in teaching, both at UIC was I was a grad student and then the University of St. Francis out in Joliet, um, about bringing people into prisons to, to inspect or get tours. So when I was at Vera, I got a tour from one of the top administrators through Vera. I got a tour of Rikers. And enlightening it was. <laughs> Let me tell you. And I've had a tour of Cook County and I, I was in Dwight for some radio work I was doing many, many years ago. And in grad school, there was this feeling by some of the grad students, probably rightly to some degree, that you're treating the inmates like zoo animals if you go in. And when I went to, I found that interesting because I understand the, 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 the emotions around that thought. But when I was at Vera, we tagged on, the Vera interns tagged on to the New York Department of Corrections interns, like their tour. And I thought it was going to be much more, I thought those interns for some reason would be much more hardcore and much more about lock them up. And immediately upon entering Rikers and seeing the conditions in a guided tour from a executive at the facility. You got the nice that, stuff. You got the nice. I, yes. You got the that's nice. What I was saying. Yeah. Mm -hmm. we, we at least got the one they thought was going to be least objectionable to us. Right. And we were all, we went to the women's side first and the men's side and we were all just stunned and disgusted and like, and then we had a lunch and a sit down with the, the top executive at the time, whoever was running it. And I didn't ask any questions because Vera was like, please be nice. We want our interns to get, be on these tours. You're there to learn, not to ruffle yeah. feathers, which yeah. was good because I would have opened up. Right. But the New York Department of Corrections interns just destroyed this guy. Ugh. Right. And I took away from that experience. Like, I understand you don't want to make them, you don't want to make them into zoo animals. And I don't know how a better way to say that now. Right. Something to be viewed. And, but you do want people to be able to go in and, really inspect the conditions mm -hmm. and yeah. there's a difference between those two but cutting off access as much as prisons in illinois try to do for everyone yeah i think one of is the least a loss. transparent states in the country right i think that's a loss for the prisoners and the guards more than it is a help i just wanted your feelings on it yeah i mean so i i've actually i've thought about this a lot because um there so i'll go back and say this i think intention matters 
I think intention matters. So if the prison staff is opening up tours to uh, get kudos from grass top civic leaders for their great work and they're trotting people through manicured parts of the prison and inmates are expected to behave a certain way or they're only brought by a certain type of inmate i think that's it, that disgusts me it disgusts me the flip side of that is um, an organization like john howard association which is a, a really important watchdog organization in the state um, does uh, visits to prisons and monitors conditions, and their intention is to keep light and focus on problems. It is not to rubber stamp or celebrate anything the administration's doing. So the intention matters. Now, because they need to have access to the prisons, they're never going to get credit for being the most radical group on the block. But what they do is absolutely vital because that regular um, consistent questioning of behavior and the record of those visits and those changes, it may not be as complete as we want. It may not, because it, it's led and allowed by the system, it may not be as robust as we always want. But in Illinois, that's all we've got outside of friends and family and lawyers, uh, legal visits. So from my point of view, I'm not going to be, uh, or, you know, and then the, the other type of person who comes in and out of a prison is a, um, an educator, a prison educator. We get, um, we've seen, there's a group called um, ILCHEP, the Illinois um, uh, Higher Ed in Prison uh, Coalition, and that group has teachers who, and professors who go in to teach classes, and they've been a kind of a backbone of advocacy because they know what things are like. They, again, they don't see everything but they're a window in and there are facilities that don't have college programs in them like Menard. And those facilities um, are worse for it because no one's being questioned. But finally, I will say this, what I and my organization decided to do, we made a very firm decision early on that everyone associated with our organization had to be visiting a friend in prison. They had to make one if they didn't have one. And so our board members, our staff, those who are allowed to, formerly incarcerated people can't go back unless they're exonerated or get special permission. We visit individuals. And um, you could even say that might be a little exploitative. Why, why should a donor in Chicago, what, should I bring a donor in Chicago to visit and meet an inmate? Well, you know, I take my cue from the men who I know who are in prison. I don't know women in prison, unfortunately. Um, but I've, um, as I visit a number of men and they, um, I can't state this enough, how much they, every single person I know demands and loves and wants more visits. My, you know, my feeling is prisons are bleak and they are homogenous <laughs> for the most part. Mm -hmm. um, and spending a few hours talking with somebody who you didn't know before, who you'd never meet in your day-to-day -day life after 20 or 30 years, um, surrounded by the same or similar men, um, is, uh, it's a remarkable gift to give. And I've never had anyone who we visited um, or hooked someone up with a visit say, gosh, I really wish I hadn't done that. For the most part, People feel like they're able to communicate, they're able to connect. Many of them form long-term friendships and correspondence. And it, it also, it opens up empathy and compassion both ways, you know, really an understanding both ways that, and that, that's, you just can't get enough of that in this world. So I'll go back and say, intention matters if you're going in because you want to have the experience of going to prison. I'm going to go to prison. I'm going to meet somebody. I'm going to, you know, get attention for that. Um, I think that's horrific, but I think if your intention is to connect with another human being and to shed, you know, learn something and shed some light on what's happening in prisons, then I think we need more and more of it. This was a very interesting conversation with Joby Cates. It is a subject that 
is definitely in need of being talked about more. As we discuss in the full interview, which again you can access through our Facebook page, a national study conducted by the Vera Institute several years ago documented that 97% of the people that we send to prison in this country will come out at some point. It behooves all of us to make sure they come out better equipped to live productive and fulfilling lives than when they went in. I hope you join us every Wednesday from 12 to 1 p.m. for our Facebook Live interview series. You can also access additional original content from CJP on our YouTube channel and this podcast. If you would like to support our transparency work and the original content, you can donate through our website at chicagojustice.org or visit our Patreon page. Thank you again for joining us today, and we'll be back with you very soon.